Hey, this is Homer Hargrove. I'm the pastor of Grape Top Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for connecting with our family today, and I hope this message inspires you and that it makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. Answers in Genesis is our new series in January, and I, I want to ask this question as we get into today's message. Do you think that Genesis is a good book to look at for life application? Do you think that the book of Genesis is a good book to look at for life application? I've come to realize that there's a lot of people in our faith that don't believe in looking at the whole part of the Bible. That a lot of us look at the New Testament as like this is it. This is uh, these are this is my, my rules, this is my direction, but the Old Testament, it's kind of vague, and so I'm going to just kind of pick and choose. Well, we strongly believe that the Old Testament is just as important as the New. Now, even when it comes to life application, you can find so many answers in Genesis. I mean, think of even uh, questions, basic questions of our world. Where did we come from? Something big like that or something simple like, why do we wear clothes? <laughs> Those answers are all in Genesis. And I believe that Genesis is one of the most important and most powerful books of the Bible because it shows faith with a blank canvas. We are able to see faith played out before there were ever any written rules or directions. We we're able to see the heart, work, and even the intention of God at face value. And for today's message, the title is The Nature of Mankind. Look at your neighbor and say, The Nature of You. The Nature of You. I want to read y'all two verses, and I thought it would be perfect as we're starting with the first book of the Bible. Why not share the last book of the Bible? In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. Why This whole exhortation about why we worship God, one of those reasons is found in Genesis. And it's talking about it in the last book of the New Testament. It's pointing that out. How do we know that God created the earth? Because we learn it in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Look at your neighbor and say, a living person. The first point is a likeness of God. The likeness of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, it says, Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. Note that it's plural, in our image, which is even in Genesis giving a symbol of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three in one, and saying our image, the Trinity. To be like us, they will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all of the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. Notice how it goes back to singular. 
Again, symbolizing the Trinity. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the first thing we need to look at is the likeness of God. What does it mean that we were created in God's image? Were you created uh, just God's anatomy looks just like ours? That would be kind of confusing um, to imagine this, this being that needs oxygen like our bodies do. That, that has eyesight that is only on a linear plane like our eyesight is. That only hears within our range of our anatomy. It's kind of weird to look at it in the physical sense. But when we understand that God is a spiritual being, and that when he breathed life into us, that he breathed his spirit into us. Look at the verses that we read before. It says that he made us from the dirt. And then he breathed life. He breathed his spirit in us. And the part that we are in, in his image is in his spirit. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And so there's, there's three specific things that we could look at that are very practical when it comes into what separates mankind from every other creation, uh, created being on our planet. And that, that's the first thing of having free will. Humans are the one species that have free will unlike any other animal uh, or any other species. We have free will and we determine what we want to do. Y'all dig what I'm saying? You could argue that animals have free will, but the moment that they're dominated by a human being, that they're domesticated, they no longer have free will. A dog doesn't even go out to use the restroom without your will for it to use the restroom. It's not free will. Having the ability to create. Human beings are the only species that can create. Look at, you don't see an army of seals creating a skyscraper, do you? You can see a seal like breaking open a shell with a rock using a tool, but that's not creating anything. Humans are the only species that have the ability to create buildings, medicines, whatever. And we have the ability to love. The ability to love. Now, I know that you might feel that that's arguable. Because your dog, your cat loves you very much. You can tell when you look at them in the eyes. You see the love so sincere. They would never desert you. They would never leave you. They've given you more love than some of your own family members. But... I would argue that just because an animal has a soul and has the ability to like you and appreciate you, that doesn't compare to the love that you feel for another human being. If you see a a dog on the side of the road that got hit by a car, man, that would, that'd be a bummer. I've seen that as a man. I hope that that dog is just asleep in the middle of the road and gets up and gets out of the way because it's a dangerous spot to take a nap. No one likes to see an animal run over or anything like that. But there's a different kind of feeling when you hear about a a young person or a human being dying. When you hear about a hit and run, it's horrifying. Even just this last week, there was was a uh, uh, a horrible scene that happened in our city uh, that where even some students were killed. And it sets differently in our hearts and our souls than if an animal were killed. It's different, the ability to love. And 
there's another thing about mankind is that we have an inner longing for companionship. An inner longing for companionship. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is dressed right for him. I want you to think about this idea for a second. God walked with Adam in the garden. He walked with him in fellowship. I mean, it was such a, 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 the, the most realist relationship on earth as God is walking himself with mankind in the Garden of Eden. And yet, even then, Adam had a desire for companionship to where God himself said, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, remember, Adam was never alone because God was there. But even God is pointing out that there's a difference from our spirits and our physical bodies here on earth. In spirit, we are with people. If you prayed for somebody, you're with them in spirit. You're connecting with them. But... Physically, you can be connected with people spiritually, but still be lonely physically. And so God recognizes that even in the garden and says it's not good for man to be alone. And that's when he makes Eve. So it's really meaningful to know that God does not want you to feel lonely. That even when he walked in the closeness with Adam... He still understood that there's a different, different concept of loneliness that Adam felt. And God didn't make Adam feel guilty about it and say, aren't I enough for you? But instead, he creates an entire new being for Adam to be made whole. I mean, the, the compassion and love of God for us to feel that kind of closure and that, com- that kind of companionship as he himself knows that while we're here on earth, that we're not 100% with him. And so he invents companionship. He invents community so that we can have that fellowship with one another without having to feel alone, even while we're connected with Christ. When you think about the church, it's the same concept of here in Genesis that we are not meant to be alone. The moment you become a Christian, you're not meant to be alone. That the church was created to be that community you can go to even when you don't have your own family. And there's people that go to church that don't have their family. Even when you give your life to Christ, not everybody is excited about it. There's sometimes where people are like, man, that's so great. Your life is all coming around. And there's other people that in your family that is like, what makes you think you're better than us just because you're going to church? And even Jesus said that when you follow him, that your own family members will be at odds against you. That it would even bring division in your family rather than unity because you choose to follow Christ. And that's why he institutes the church because he did not want you to be alone. Church is supposed to be all about Christ and community. But now in our culture, it's mainly about just hearing a message and leaving. (laughs) Coming as fast as you can and leaving as fast as you can. You don't know anybody. You say, hi, God bless you to a complete stranger. You never talk to anybody. The pastor doesn't know your name. It's just this microwave feeling of church and nothing really genuine is formed besides just like, oh, I might have learned something about God today. But even that is arguable because can you even like remember what we talked about two months ago? Are those teachings very that valuable to you? What's mainly what you really feel at church is when you connect with somebody. 
When you have a meaningful moment, you're like, man, I like that person. Those are the moments that are meaningful, but we neglect community in our culture. Another thing about companionship is that God desires relationship over religion. He desires a relationship with the individual rather than just a practice of don't do this, do that. He shows it here in Genesis as he walked with Adam and Eve. It was just a complete relationship. And as we look throughout Genesis, before any rules were ever instituted, the people that were counted as righteous are those who had a relationship with God. And what does it also mean about companionship is that we need a relationship over, uh, with God over a re- religious practice or show. I mean, every time I talk to somebody that was raised in church, they usually tell me like a not so fun time. <laughs> It just seemed like they were like dragged to church against their will. They were just told to sit and listen. Just do this. Kneel down. Get up. We already baptized you as a baby. So you don't just, just, we already checked off all the things on the list. So you're good. That's all you have to do. But as far as like really getting to know God for your own personal self, it's like, oh, well, we don't really do that. I mean, uh, 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 being, Paul says that living, that the, the, most per, the person to be most pitied is, is the, if the fact was that we were Christians and Jesus didn't raise from the dead. He says because all of our faith would be meaningless. But I would go a step further and say some of the most pitied person, people that we can have are the people that, that are on the fence with their, their relationship with God. The reason I say that is because if you're just doing these religious practices, you're not, you're not really engaged with the God of the universe. You, you are not having all the pleasures of sin. You're holding back and just dabbling, you know, kind of like just dipping your toes here and there. But you're not engaging with the, the God of the universe to experience his power either. I mean, there's, a, there's such amazing joy and peace and power in God when we just dive right in. But when we sit on the fist, we're like teeter-tottering, like, oh, I don't know, I, kinda, I do want to commit, but I'm not really willing to. You end up in this miserable spot where you're not satisfied with church or God, and you're not satisfied with your old life either because you're you know, halfway trying on both. It's a miserable spot to be. But if, when you have a real relationship with God, or you really engage with Him like, like a marriage, I mean, how many of you would want to be with somebody and they told you, well, I'm really just with you because I don't want to be lonely? That'd be a miserable relationship. But that's what we do with God. We say, well, I'm really only with you because I don't want to go to hell. I mean, God desires a true heart, a heart connection with us. And when we get that, it really does make a difference in your walk with Christ. Y'all feel what I'm saying? So the, going into the next point, this one's a really fun one. It's the imagination of sin. The imagination of sin. Someone say imagination. imagination. Yeah, I, I appreciate the hand gestures. It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. It says in James chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, Temptation 
comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. We're gonna, these are really powerful verses because it's, tell, it's literally telling us that, that sin starts in our minds. Now let me make something clear. You, you do not sin until you make the action of sin. But you're preparing yourself for the action in your mind. It's like, a, like if you were to imagine a married couple. And the husband doesn't commit adultery until he commits adultery. But if he's flirting with other girls at work, random waitresses or whatever, and he's imagining the idea over months and years, don't you see how that prepared him from, for when the right moment came that he committed adultery? Something that he obviously wouldn't want to do because he made a commitment to his wife. But this fascination, this imagination, this fantasy ends up giving birth to sinful actions. And what would a sinful action produce? Death. And that death looks like different things. In that specific scenario, adultery would like, look like death in the marriage. Every, every kind of action will look differently. But the point I'm trying to make is that sin starts in our minds before we are ever tempted and that fantasy prepares you to give into temptation once it arrives. I want us to look at the first sin ever committed in the Garden of Eden. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 through 7, and I want us to look, have this scripture stay on the screen because I want us to really look at it and analyze it. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. That's what sin is like, right? It just looks so good. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it too. What that means is that it wasn't all Eve's fault. Adam was there the whole time. He didn't step up as a man. Didn't kill that, that snake when he could have. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame. Someone say shame. At their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And let's leave that scripture on the screen. Our imagination is deceitful. And it convinces us that what we will get is better than what we will lose. If you think about the sin that you really don't want to do, but it keeps just itching at you and itching at you. There's a moment where you're convinced and the lack of judgment because of pleasure that what you'll get will be better than what you'll lose. We all have those moments where we acknowledge that we're going to lose something. We're going to lose something if I give in to this. But at that moment, the pleasure is so enticing that it seems like it'll be better what we get than what we'll lose. And a lot of, a lot of us look at even the garden, we think, well, the, the devil convinced her, the serpent convince her to eat the garden. But it didn't really take much convincing, did it? <laughs> All the serpent said was, did God really say that? No. That won't, that will probably not happen. And she was convinced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what? You're right. See, that's what happens in our imagination. We play it out so well in our imagination over time 
that there's a moment where someone's like, oh, that's not a big deal. And you're like, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, I should just do it, right? I should just, what's a big deal? And we're convinced. It just takes a little comment to just push us over the edge to do something that we didn't want to do. It says that she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. Can I just point out that it never says here that it's an apple tree. Well, you're just going to say it's an undisclosed fruit in the Bible. <laughs> and it says that she looked at the fruit and it seemed beautiful. You know what's interesting? They, they do scientific studies on, on pleasure sensors in our brain. Did you know when the, the enticement of pleasure is aroused within us, that as those sensors are increased in our brain, that the sensors that we have our judgment, that use, are used for our judgment, decrease. And that's why in the moments where you knew before that you didn't want to do this one thing, but the moment that the pleasure is right there enticing you, you think differently. You notice that? And once the pleasure is fulfilled, afterwards you're like, crap, what did I do? I can't believe I messed up. And it's, it's that shame that immediately follows our actions that causes us to try to hide our mistakes. What's funny, or even ironic, is that we tend to hide the things that everybody else has or struggles with. Think about, like, like I'm, not, I'm not promoting, you know, us being nudists or anything. But think about it. They're completely naked. They feel shame, and they cover something that everybody else has. And also, there's not really anybody else going on here. It's just them and God, and they're like, oh, my goodness. Adam. What were you thinking? I have my hair to cover up, but what do you have? And sorry for the imagery, but it, and they, it's often that we cover up struggles in our lives that other people struggle with. But at the moment, it feels like you're the only person in the world that has that struggle, doesn't it? It feels like nobody else has a problem with X, Y, or Z except for you. And the, if you've ever had a moment where you found out that somebody else struggles with it too, you're just like, what? Are you serious? It's like a liberating feeling. And you know why that is? Is because transparency leads to victory. Victory happens with transparency. And when we, when we imagine, even with Adam and Eve, it says shortly after this part of the story that when God showed up, he said, who, who told you guys you were naked? And Because it, it said that they, they hid in the garden. That they hid themselves from an omnipresent God, an omniscient God. They hid themselves knowing that God could see them, but played out the story because they were embarrassed and ashamed, guilty, so they hid. But if you, if you notice, when they are transparent and they talk about what happened, God simply explains the consequences of their actions. He told them before that sin would lead to death. And so you could even argue about the thought, is it God putting judgment on Adam and Eve when he lists these consequences? 
Or was it the simple result of sin entering into mankind? And what does God do after this point? When they were transparent with God, when they were honest, it says that God himself made the sacrifice for them and covered them with animal skins. That when they were transparent and honest, that God covered them. And I'm a strong believer in transparency. Transparency is one of the most difficult things to live out in any human being's life. And I don't even think it's really possible to be 100% transparent. Because honestly, if you were to share like all of your thoughts, you'd probably be in jail or something or in like an insane asylum. Don't you agree? If you were to have every thought you had about another person, every thought you had on the road. <laughs> I mean, me right there, like, I don't think you guys would want me to be a pastor anymore. <laughs> but when we live a life of, of putting effort to being transparent, it brings victory. And have you ever talked to somebody that, that tries to cover up, that tries to hide their life? I mean, isn't that really what church is like? Everyone, like, I think it's crazy when people, I mean, I love reverence for God and everything. I'm not saying that it's wrong to wear a three-piece suit to church. But it's just interesting to me, like, this, this persona of showing up to church, like, all of a sudden you're this business, like, business entrepreneur. And, like, and, and you're going to church like you're, you got everything together. You're perfect. God bless you, brother, sister in Christ. Someone's like, man, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty for the Lord. Yes. And you become this, this super spiritual person. But it's like everybody knows. It's like, man, you're not really like that every day of the week. I mean, some people talk like that every day of the week. But it's like that if you just look at their actions and mute their vocals... Like, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> That's what I thought. I mean, but when you talk to somebody that's just really down to earth, and they're open about like their life and their struggles. When you talk to them, they're not like, oh, God bless you. Yes, my life is blessed. What can I say? But when you talk to them, they're like, man, like, actually, honestly, like I haven't told everybody this, but right before church, I was really upset and I started punching my steering wheel like <laughs> Someone's like, some of y'all are like, man, that's really like, like we need to pray for that person. But, <laughs> but like when you talk to somebody that's really open and transparent, you almost appreciate them more. You appreciate their openness. You, and, and it's like when you think about what characteristics do we value in people, what, what I've come to find out, one of the best things to be said about you or about an individual is that person's really down to earth. What that means is like what that pretty much means is you're 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 an honest person. You don't try to pretend to be someone you're not. You're just down to earth. You have a, a reality and grasp. And I believe that being transparent is like that. When you are able to be transparent in your life, you will have victory. When it comes to real struggles and addictions, think about even the the, the power in, in organizations like AA. I mean, that is one of the most successful organizations of breaking alcoholism in people's lives. And one of the most powerful aspects about it is the ability to be transparent with a group of people without judgment. Imagine if church could be like that. In our culture, you just got to pretend, fake it till you make it. Imagine we could just be open and, and open up with somebody that you trust 
And they don't judge you or make you feel bad, but they're like, man, I, I'm so sorry you've been struggling with that. I, I could, like, there's things I struggle with too. I'm sorry that you're going through that alone, but you don't have to. Like, I'm going to be praying for you. And anytime you want to talk, we can, I'll be here to, so you can lean on. And when I need your help, I'll lean on you. Doesn't that sound like a, a much better church to go to? Some say yes. Now, our last point is faith of man. Someone say faith. 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 It's an echoing thing, faith is. When you think about the Word of God, it echoes through eternity. Scripture says that the Word of God is alive and powerful. That's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword that cuts between our soul and our spirit. That even cuts between our bone and our marrow. That the Word of God is that powerful that it moves in the spirit and in the physical. And we're going to look at two people when it comes to faith. We're going to look at these two people and three qualities that they possess that show us what kind of faith to have in Genesis. Y'all ready for this? If you've ever wondered, can I learn something out of the book of Genesis? Buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> That was a corny joke on purpose, by the way. Um, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. It says, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Real quick, we know that no human being is perfect. All throughout the Bible, it tells us that there's not one person without sin. So why is it saying that Noah is blameless? Think about that for a second. Moving on in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6 through 7. It says, Abram traveled through the land as far as Sheshem. There he set up camp beside the Oak of Morah. Another version says that he pitched his tents beside the Oak of Morah. At that time, the area was inhabited by Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. So he pitched tents and he built altars. And finally, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Because of his faith. Because of his faith. So these are great examples of faith and can be summed up in these two men, Noah and Abram, by the three things that they practiced and possessed. The first thing, let's look at Noah, is that they walked in fellowship with God. Think about what that means for a second. This is before, I mean, I don't know if they have, like, what temples or churches were like in this time, but... There's obviously not like, you know, a grand selection of godly or Christian churches to go to because this is right before God's about to wipe out humanity with the flood. So Noah, without church, without any Bible readings, he walked in fellowship with God. So what that means is that even the disciplines of our faith do not equate to fellowship with God. It's good to have disciplines in our faith, like reading the Bible, praying, going to church, 
fasting even, but there's a clear difference when it comes to walking in fellowship with God. And what it means is that it's fellowship with God is literally your lifestyle, your heart, and your state of mind to be connected with God. That you're not even on the level of like, I don't want to sin. That you're not on the level of don't do this, try to do that. But that your whole state of being, your, 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 your heart, your lifestyle, and your state of mind is in fellowship with God. I want you to think about a hobby or an attribute about yourself that you would say describes you or that you enjoy, that, that you live in. And for some, it might be sports. For others, it might be fitness. Some, it's education. Maybe it's even socializing. Whatever it is, have you noticed that those things about you becomes all of you? It's like your identity. Like people who are into football, they're into football. Like, like Cowboys hats, jerseys, everything. Like nothing stands in the way of a Cowboys game. Even last night, I had to go to a meeting for, uh, for uh, Youth for Christ and there is a person that did not show up because a football game was on. Think about that for a second. Like they didn't show up to a very important meeting that th- for a group that they were heavily involved with because the football game was on. Like that is a lifestyle state of mind and heart right there. <laughs> Y'all dig what I'm saying? Like if, if you think about any area, like think about fitness. If you have ever met people that were like really into fitness or bodybuilders, it's not just like, oh, I'm going to the gym to be healthy. It's their lifestyle. It's like a state of being. Y'all dig what I'm saying? It, and there's, there's all these other things that we could look at. But what I'm projecting to you is that that kind of lifestyle is possible with God. That fellowship where like everything about you is Christ. Everything about you is God. And not in a weird, super spiritual way. But like truly like everything you do, everything that you think about, you're almost looking through the sunglasses of Christ. Y'all feel what I'm saying? Your perspective is different than everybody else because it's your lifestyle. If you even think about like your passions, whether like if you talk to a person about football and they're adamant that the Cowboys are the best, there's nothing you can do to convince them otherwise. It's like they are literally looking through the glasses, the sunglasses of the Cowboys. That's all they see. That's all they breathe. What if we did that with Christ? It's where it's all we breathe. It's all we want. Y'all, y'all feel what I'm saying? That, that's what fellowship with God looks like. Let's look at this idea of where Abraham pitched his tents and built his altars. If you read through Genesis and you read through the story of Abraham, everywhere he goes, it says that he pitched tents and set up camp and that he built an altar there. The tent meant that it was going to be torn down and moved somewhere else. But the altar was there to stay. So what does that really mean, like, deeper-wise? It means being flexible in your life with God's direction. That's what pitching your tent means. That you're willing to be flexible with God in your life. That when you feel like God is telling you to do something you're willing to rearrange your life 
in order to fulfill that move of God in your heart. Think about the simple idea of like going to church consistently. Like I, I'm the first one to say that I probably wouldn't be here every Sunday if I wasn't preaching. <laughs> like life gets super busy and it gets hard. Jobs, work, kids, everything. But beyond like, like complications that we can't control, think about the simple idea of rearranging your life around the simple practice of church. That's an idea of pitching your tents in this world. That you rearrange your life to fit the needs that you have in God. Y'all dig that? Do we do that in other things? Yes, definitely. If you've ever had a friend that, uh, that had kids that were in band or on the football game, they literally take off work to fill the needs of their child. They, they, they rearrange their work schedule to go to the football game. Or if it's all about work, they choose not to go to any other thing because they have to do overtime at work. It's like you, you, what, you, what is most important to you, you rearrange your schedule to fit. And, in, and when it comes to pitching our tents, we need to be reminded that our time on earth is very limited. That even today is not guaranteed. That tomorrow is not guaranteed. And if we really believe that, then we would make God our primary focus because we're going to be hanging out with him for eternity. So wouldn't it make more sense to put him more of a focus than the temporary things of this world? When it says built his altars, that he built altars everywhere he went, what it symbolizes is that he was serious about a lasting commitment, a lasting discipline, and a lasting worship to God. He built something that was going to last. He, let, he made something that was going to stay there. That even when winds and rains came against it, the altar was still going to be there. And when it comes to our personal commitment and discipline, we should do our best and forget the rest. But often, we, don't we give God our, our doggy bag, our scraps? I mean, think about even like the concept of praying or reading the Bible. Don't raise your hand or anything, but how often do we like get our prayer time in? Or if you are reading the Bible, usually do it at the end of the day when you're about to go to sleep. You're like, oh, let me read a scripture verse before I go to bed. That's meaningful. Like, don't get me wrong. But wouldn't it be more of building an altar where the first thing you do is like, when, I, I need to read the Bible today. Instead of like staying up late to like finish the last parts of your day, after you've given yourself of everything else, imagine starting the first of your day as a priority. Do y'all see the difference? It's more meaningful when we, when we make a serious discipline, a serious commitment, a serious worship to God. Pitching tents and building altars. And the final thing is that they believed God at His word and His power. They believed God at his word and in his power. It's their simple belief that is what counted them as righteous. That last verse said that it was because of Abraham's faith that it counted him as righteous. Well, in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, it says, But people are counted as righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. 
What this verse means is that we are not saved by how good of a Christian we are. That, that we are literally, the Bible says that we're credited righteousness by our faith. What that means is that God gives us righteousness when we believe. Have you ever gotten a credit card before, a student loan? That money's not yours. But you get to spend it like it is. Well, that's what it's like with righteousness and faith. When we, when we deposit our faith into God and put our trust in Him, He gives us righteousness. He gives us holiness to where we're still, where that's how we can still be sinners yet have righteousness. It's just like the same concept of being in debt but having money. We, we didn't do it on our own. God did it for us. But the simple fact that they believed God at His word and His power. That's why I believe Genesis is one of the most powerful books for, you, for any Christian to wrap their head around because it's the start of belief. The very first scripture is a point for people to believe or not. God created the world. I mean, that's, that's a point of belief where you have the opportunity to be credited righteousness in the very first verses by your willingness to believe God in scripture. And I would argue the facts. If, if it, you find it difficult to believe things in Genesis as fact, as, as reality. I mean, is it much of a jump to go from God creating the world in seven days or God wiping the world out with the flood? Is it a drastic change to believe Jesus resurrecting from the dead? I mean, all of Scripture in the New Testament references the Old Testament. So if they're referencing the Old Testament and we choose not to believe the Old Testament, then what, what foundation do we have to believe the New? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And think of the concept, have you ever known anybody that has passed away, but days later they rose from the dead and you were talking to them again? I personally would be terrified because I would assume that they were a zombie. Maybe that's why we don't know anybody like that because they were immediately, you know, stabbed in the head with a wooden mop handle or something because they were assumed to be a zombie. But think about how really crazy of a faith it takes to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he literally died. Now, everybody knew that he died and yet to believe that he's resurrected. That takes faith to believe. And that's the foundation of our faith as Christians. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our faith is meaningless and we have nothing to believe in. But the same God that rose Jesus from the the dead is the same God we're talking about in the Old Testament in Genesis that's describing all these things. So we can't take Genesis. Honestly, there's no way we can take any of the New Testament. All the miracles in there but we can't believe the Genesis? It, it's, it's really, it's, it's asinine to take one but not the other. When you get down to just logic and understanding, and that, turns our, that is what makes our faith almost undirected and, and with ill foundation when we, choose, when we start to pick and choose scriptures that we want to believe in. 
With that being said, I want us to all bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you're here today, and maybe you have a moment that you realize that you need to put your faith in Jesus for the very first time. Maybe, maybe for the first time you realized these, these ideas about Genesis, these ideas about the resurrection. At some point in this message today, you realize that you need to make a worship in your heart to God, a discipline, a commitment to really follow after Him, to not sit on the fence any longer. And if that's you here today with every head bowed and eye closed, I want you to just raise your hand. I see your hands. I see your hands. And with all your eyes still closed and your heads bowed, I want you to pray this prayer after me. I want you to understand that the book of Romans says that all you have to do to be saved, to enter in this relationship with Christ is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, when it comes to walking in fellowship with God, it's just like what we talked about, a day-to-day lifestyle, state of mind and heart. But to start this journey, just believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so if you rose your hand, pray this prayer after me. And if you've already given your life to Christ, I want you to repeat this prayer too as a reaffirmation of your faith. Say, Lord Jesus, I put my trust in you. I believe you're the son of God, that you died for me on the cross and that you rose from the dead. Now you did this for my sins to save me so that I could walk in fellowship with you. I put my complete trust and hope in you. And I ask you to walk with me the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did, there's a couple things that you could do to connect. First is to subscribe to our show so that the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And second is if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description or visit our website, gravetop.com, and you can give now. I'll see you next time on the Gravetop Church Podcast.